the more you know, the less you want to have one identity. The more you know, the less you want to think about yourself only as a one thing. I just feel like the world should, shouldn't be so segregated and divided. Maybe if we go back into like uh, thinking of ourselves as uh, Thomas More and his utopia, you know, in his book, like that we create utopia for ourselves where everyone becomes equal and that we actually respect and tolerate and that we don't divide people i think we would all be happier and much more kind of make better art maybe <laughs> romatopia romata esintura ceren svato katrlendi utopia sarbishaya e evropa tharatevel Davis and welcome to our next episode of the podcast Romatopia, Roma Talk About Their Utopia for Europe. My name is Isabel Rabe and I'm hosting this podcast together with William Bila. Hi and a big welcome to everyone also from my side. In this podcast we are going to talk to Roma from all over Europe and beyond about their lives, about their experiences and about their utopia. We want to present counter images and counter narratives to oppose stereotypes and prejudices. In the coming months, we'll be talking to a number of noteworthy community members from a varied cross-section of the Romani peoples. I'm really interested in hearing about what being Romani is to other people, because we don't often get a chance to discuss such things. For those who do not know, the Romani peoples are Europe's largest minority. This includes Sinti, Roma, Gitanos, Romanis, and other groups who loosely share a common ancestry and have been present in Europe for well over 600 years. Through linguistic theories, we know they originated in India, traveled through Persia, and were present in the Eastern Roman Empire for some time before dispersing throughout Europe. Their economic and cultural contributions have historically been overlooked. Their history is an integrally interwoven part of European history, which also is often mistaken as one of external exclusion and hardship. Though periods of extreme persecution did make their mark well before the 20th century and the genocide which we suffered during the Second World War. After the fall of the Iron Curtain in 1989, Romani peoples have gradually been making themselves more visible on the European scene. Hello, Selma. Welcome. Hi, Selma. We're starting off with a little game here, and the game is a kind of introduction to, to our guests here. And we asked someone who knows you to, okay. you know, think of a sentence uh, about Selma. What would you say about her? How would you describe her? And someone said... Selma is an extraordinary artist whose work lit up the future Roma exhibition in Venice. And now the game part is we're going to ask you to guess who might have said that. Well, <laughs> it's going to be someone who was at Venice and went to see the show. Maybe Timea. Maybe. Or do you have another guess? Um, Alina Serban or Robert Gabrisch. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. Or maybe. Are you sure mm, that's what your final choice is? Maybe uh, Hans Vans Orbist. <laughs> okay, I think, I think we'll tell you. That was, yeah. Marina Bramovic, I don't know. By the way, it, we get all the artists list uh, participated <laughs> in the Roma Pavilion. Yes. <laughs> That's interesting too. Yes. For Adrian Piper, I would be so happy if Adrian Piper said that. That would be my biggest success in life. <laughs> well, this time it was Daniel Baker. Okay, cool. <laughs> 
Nice. Thank you. So, Sama, um, I'm going to read now um, a short CV from your website so that our listeners get to know you a little better, okay? Okay. Selma Selman, born in 1991, is an artist from Bosnia and Herzegovina and is of Romani origin. She earned her Bachelor of Fine Arts in 2014 from Banja Luka University's Department of Painting. In 2018, she graduated from Syracuse University, New York, with a Master of Fine Arts in Transmedia, Visual and Performing Arts. She has participated in many solo and group exhibitions in the US and in Europe, won prizes and is a regular artist in residence all over the world. In her artwork, the ultimate aim is to protect and enable female bodies and enact a cross-scholar approach to collective self-emancipation of oppressed women. Selma's search for functional contemporary political resistance stems from her own personal experience with oppression from various directions and scales. Selma is also the founder of the organization Get the Heck to School, which aims to empower Roma girls all around the world who face marginalization and poverty. Selma Selma currently lives and works in Bihać, Bosnia-Herzegovina and in New York, USA. So this is from your website. Do you want to add anything? No, I think this is it. This is cool. Great. Okay, so let's start with a couple of questions about your childhood and your family. Can you say what's your most vivid memory of your childhood? Um, I was a very wild child. I don't know, like I was always on the streets playing with the boys. I didn't have female friends. So, and I was playing with um, all boy toys. So I was like a tomboy when I was a child. <laughs> okay. So, so what, what were your favorite games? Well, what you said you liked what you liked doing most. Shooting, so. <laughs> shooting, <laughs> scaring people. <laughs> shooting, shooting what? Shooting. Like, just like playing, you know, like making the guns, you know, and okay. like playing, you know, pretending we're like at the war. <laughs> oh, I mean, okay. stupid children's games or like, I don't know, like, um, I don't know, just inventing stuff. We would invent many things and just go play with this. I don't know, inventing our own um, games, just make up the game. Okay. And then I remember, actually, I can say the story. We were actually, we made our own school and I was the teacher and all other kids, there were students. And I actually wore my... Uh, mom's heels <laughs> I was <laughs> pretending that I was their teacher and I was the youngest one <laughs> so. okay. and and how was it like Anna to experience the war do what do you remember from that I don't know like I was born in 1991 and the war started 1992 so I don't remember much of the war I remember like the post-war situation you know in, in Bosnia and Bihać And, uh, you know, like the city was devastated, but for me, that was kind of normal because that's what, that was the image that I was used to see all the time. And um, I don't know, like, I feel like people were kind of more together during that time, like sharing stuff, sharing cigarettes all the time, mm -hmm. coffee and sugar. But now you can see the differences, how everyone is kind of isolated and working with their own kind of life. But before that, I remember 96, 97, 8, everyone was like hanging out and uh, 
you know, people didn't put so much borders between themselves. Okay. Uh, how about your brothers and sisters? What are they doing? I mean, they were all older than me. So some of them, they were going to school. They were like pioneers because they went to school during the Yugoslavia. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, many of them stopped going to school and they worked uh, with my father at the market. They were selling carpets and bananas. Carpets and bananas. Yes, my father was like a really big businessman before Yugoslavia, during the Yugoslavia and after Yugoslavia until 1999 when the crisis happened in Bosnia, 2000. Okay, well, I heard, I thought you also uh, worked as a metal collector with your family. Is that yes. true? Was yes, that? yes, that happened later, like in 2009. Okay. I was actually like, that's the business that I actually remember the most because I remember a little bit of the business that my father was doing when he was selling bananas. And I can actually, you know, like when I smelled the bananas, they smelled different, like during that time. And then like, yeah, he was actually selling the carpets. And this was really good time actually to work with the carpets because he was the first one to come up with the idea of the business. He didn't have much education. He had only eight years of elementary education. Education, but he was really good businessman. But then I think in 2000, when he went to buy the carpets, I think in Sarajevo, in the capital of Bosnia, uh, some people stole everything what he possessed, the money, the, the, the van and everything. And this is when he bankrupt. And this is when actually after a few years, he started the business with the metal, which is one of the hardest works to do at the Balkans. But basically all Roma people are doing this. And this is when poverty started. And then I was also collecting the scrap metal with my father, working in the scrapyard. You know, for me, that was like a normal way of making money. And today, is is your father still working as metal collector? Yes, he is. But he's also a performer now. Yes, I know. <laughs> we talk about this later, about how you involve your family in, in, in your artworks. That's very interesting. Yeah. What about your mother? I read that she was married at the age of 12 and became mother at the age of 13. Did your mother talk uh, talk to you about that? I mean, she never talked about, you know, like her past when I was a child, mm. right? She just, as you know, in some of my works, I actually talk a lot about her um past and like uh, her advice which she gave me like don't be like me I don't know I remember my mom like a woman who would always work you know clean make food but now when I see what she went through I think you know she never had time to be herself because she always had to bury two girls to be a mother and to be a wife and yeah her story is like extraordinary she's a hero mother for me and regardless of I'm For her to be uneducated and illiterate, I think she's a very progressive mother because she made me who I am today. Mm. It's interesting because uh, so many of our guests emphasize the role of their mother, what impact this had and all those very strong female ancestors. I got a question actually to both of you, Bill and Selma. Would you say that this is a something that is rooted in many Romani cultures? Is the role of the mother or is it just coincidence? That's a good question. I, If you're asking me, I don't know exactly how to answer because I could say from my experience, yes, it seems to be that way. And from people I know and from my cousins, it's usually, yeah, it's if it's my cousins from my mother's sisters, yes. And then my cousins who are female, yes. So in our family, yes, very much. But I don't know that how, how typical that is. I don't know how to compare mm. that uh, because when I talk to some people, I get the impression that uh, 
Roma men dominate a lot of things, and it's a quite sexist culture. But I've I've always seen strong women. So f- my experience is yes, mm-hmm. but I, I don't. I'm not so mm-hmm. sure. What do you think, Sema? Mm-hmm. I would say, like, because we live in a patriarchal society, mm. you know, we know that man is gonna like get the old power. So this is why, for example, we want to recognize our mothers, you know, as a powerful beings and very important parts of our lives. And I wouldn't say that it's only for Roma. I would say it's kind of collective for many of my friends, female and male. Like their mothers played a big role in their life. Mm. Yeah, it's very interesting. But because it was, it, it really struck me. Bill, no? all of our guests were were talking about their mothers and um, how important they were. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I guess I didn't think about it because it's the same for mm. me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got one more question regarding this child marriage. Uh, both of your sisters were married at young age through arranged marriage. That's what I read. Was that so? Two of my sisters, they were married in the, into arranged marriage. One of them was 16, another one 17. Mm-hmm. And they were married for the two brothers in Austria. Mm-hmm. They're kind of Albanian, mm-hmm. Austrian-Albanian drama. I see. Yeah, my sister Roberta, like she was 16 when she got married and she was very talented, actually. She was really good in English and uh, in uh, painting and drawing. She was really mm-hmm. good. So this this all topic from I'm asking because it's also a prejudice that this child marriage is a Roma tradition, which is not true. And I know that you did some research on child and arranged marriage in the Balkans Roma communities, um, which goes back to the 15th century. Do you want to talk about this? Because this is very interesting for our listeners, I guess. Sure, of course. Like, I mean, there's like a few reasons why child marriage and arranged marriage stayed, you know, at Balkans as a routine. And I don't call it tradition. I mean, what is tradition today? You know, like, and there's like several reasons why, for example, my father like uh, married off my sisters and why my my father was actually also married very young he was 17 then my mother was 12 and then his mother and mother of his mother so it had somehow the roots which are connected with the immigration of Roma people but also like the Ottoman Empire which lasted for many years so from the research I made and from the like from the conversation I had with uh, also my father but also many Roma You know, they would tell me that soldiers, actually Turkish soldiers during the Ottoman Empire, they would rape young uh, females, only virgins. And uh, Roma people, in order to prevent them, they would marry their children very young, which means oh, that... Interesting. Okay, I didn't, I didn't yeah. remember that before. Okay. And uh, this is one of like kind of way how they would save their children. But I wouldn't say that they save their children, like neither situation is actually good for the child neither to like be raped neither to be married i think there should be somehow like a third option and that's something that i'm working on today with my foundation get the heck to school you know where i'm actually working on the emancipation of the roma girls that you know like that school education is the only way how you can fight the poverty but also the child marriage So the reason why it stayed in many Roma families, not all, not not all Roma families are actually, you know, like uh, selling their daughters. Some of them are doing it because of the economic situation, because of the poverty, but also because of the older people in the villages, because they have to look good, you know, like Roma parents, they have to look good in front of their peers, like, you know, to behave like they can 
still be patriarchal and be the the main um you know like people in the family like the father like social the status baby. like you yeah. took care of your children you married them off that's part of your social obligation and you can be proud of yeah. that kind of yeah thing. yeah and they think in that way they're also saving the future of uh their daughters and then when you see for example for now i'm talking um about bosnia because this is the country i know the best but what's happening in bosnia that you know bosnia is divided into three parts Serbs, Croats, and uh, Muslims. And then you have uh, people who belong to other. That's Roma people, Jewish people. And then what's happening that we don't have any financial support for Roma. Bosnia doesn't have any financial support for Roma people. They don't have universal basic income. They don't have health insurance. They don't have like a social security for vulnerable children. For example, to take care if they don't go to school, okay, what do you do with those children who don't go to school? So what's happening that uh, Roma had to find their own way of surviving, which means, okay, they would love to educate their children, but maybe they cannot because they don't have what to feed them. They don't have what to give them to wear. And plus you have discrimination and stereotypes. So it's really hard, you know, to deal with all these problems. And then when you think about my project, Get Hack to School, who is actually giving the scholarships to girls, but at the same time, it's kind of educating parents about the importance of the school. So what I am doing now, it's not my uh, role. It's, this is not my job. This is the job of the government. Uh, the government should take care of unprivileged children to give them scholarships, to give them enough, just to feed them, to give them food, clothes, and like some free money would be enough, you know, and you will see that we will have like a big and next generation of very educated people, because this is what my foundation did. I'm sorry if I talk too much about this, but oh, no, this that's is, great. That's what we want to hear. Right. Yeah, because this is something which made the progress. And I myself am very fascinated because I didn't believe that this is something which is going to help. I was thinking, no, Roma people, they just want to make money. No, they want their children to go to school. You know, they want them to be educated. They want their children to help help them later as well. This is why, for example, from 15%, how much Roma children were uh, finishing the elementary school, now we have 95%. Just in like <laughs> three years, with the scholarship which I send every month, which is only $50 per month. This is not much money. I'm not talking about millions. I'm talking about $50, yeah. which changed someone's life. Wow. You know, and then what's happening now that we have, like I was the only woman who had the education in, in my hometown, you know, the only Roma woman. And now we have another girl who just started the low school. She started to study. And then we have another girl who started to study at art school. And then we have 12 children in elementary school who are going to graduate next year and then apply for the high school. So we have the biggest number of educated girls. Wow. And you're supporting girls, don't, don't you? I focus on mm -hmm. girls. Uh, I have 12 girls and I have two boys, but also I have 50 other children who would get daily lunch. Mm -hmm. But um, because of the financial situation today and the uh, pandemic, like we stopped this program with the sandwiches because children have online schooling and, you know, the conference today with the virus mm -hmm. stopped me mm -hmm. for, you know, giving the uh, lunches in school. Mm -hmm. It's really an amazing project. Uh, where does the money come from? <laughs> well, to be honest, like, I don't know. Like, everyone asks me that. But, uh, you know, 
thanks God that I'm a little bit famous so I can sell some of my works. So um, I, when I sell work, 50% goes to my foundation, wow. but I also make fundraising mm-hmm. nights. And I have very enormous group of women, women like who really support me. So it's going from the, mostly from the private funds. I was never supported by the organizations because uh, such a program doesn't exist in East Europe, like the scholarships for the uh, children in, in elementary school, especially for Roma. We have a lot of organizations who give scholarships for the mm-hmm. high school and for the higher education. Mm-hmm. But when you think logically about how do you have Roma people in a high school if they don't have elementary sure. education. I mean, this is, we're talking about logics. Sure. Yeah, this is a lot of the work I've done. I don't know if you've heard of Roma Education Fund. Yeah, I was getting the that scholarship. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of similar work. It's if you don't have the kids who complete their basic education, they can't go to high school. If they don't get to high school, they can't go further. If they don't have yeah. their breakfast or their lunch, they're not going to go mm. to school. So all of these basic things, these are these are things that, yeah, the government should be doing, but people like you, people like Roma Education Fund, move in and do some of these things that the government should be doing, show yeah. that it's good results, and then hopefully maybe someday it, will, it won't have to depend on you or... or yeah. And until that day is coming, can donation be made? I mean, maybe it's it's interesting for our listeners who will want to support your project. Um, yeah, definitely. That would be great. They can do it through my, um, probably my phone. It's called getheckedtoschool.com or through my social media, Instagram or Facebook. Uh, or they can just email me. But I will also have soon the fundraising online fundraising page where they can, mm-hmm. you know, maybe purchase some work or just like yeah. Donate, okay, we will also put some links for all those who are interested in supporting this program in the show notes to this episode. Sama, talking about school, how was your time in school? Oh, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. Um, it was really good. It was very challenging. And uh, one thing which I really love and appreciate by myself is that I never made a difference between me and other children. And I accepted myself since I was a child. I knew the differences, but I never kind of went and said, like, I'm different than you. I'm neither bad, neither better. I'm just normal. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show to everyone that I can be good as much as you or I can be bad as much as you so so you didn't experience any discrimination and you didn't see it for for others other children didn't you didn't see teachers acting differently towards other Roma kids possibly I mean when you talk about discrimination you know in marginalized group of people of course that the discrimination will always be present but I don't think so that um it's important to like say what professors or children said to me directly and what they said to other children I think it's really important actually to find the reason why that happened and what do we do to prevent it you know it's not really healthy to go back into your own kind of traumas and then like describe them again and again I think it's really important to admit and say that yes there was a discrimination but okay what do we do now with that I love that answer, and that's how I try to live as well. Nothing be bachtalo, just go forward and look for the bach. That's, that's <laughs> yes. uh, wonderful, wonderful. In in your biography, it says that you search for political resistance, or the way you, your search for political resistance stems from your personal experience with oppression from various directions. Do you want to mention something about that without going too much into detail and just tell a little bit about your experience? I can say, for example, the work with my mom, like, don't be like me. 
Yeah, you know, because my mom actually really influenced on me and her life and everything what she went through. I don't know if you saw my work, Saltwater at uh, 47. It's the work when my mom first goes to the beach. Mm-hmm. So in that work, for example, like, which took me a lot of years, you know, to make it, it took me two years. In that work, I'm talking about the various oppressions because like uh, my mom was not the only woman who didn't have the documents in the village. Many women you know, like didn't have documents, but they were living in Bosnia for like more than 40 years. They were not visible. And of course, my mom influenced on me like a lot. And then uh, since I was a child, she would tell me like, um, she would really love to actually um, experience how is that to pass the border today with your own passport. And also she wondered if the sea is really salty because for her, it was just utopic, right? And uh, I was like, you know, researching a lot how she can obtain this, the citizenship of Bosnia during the time when everyone in Bosnia was uh, looking how to go to immigrate to Germany. You know, my mom was looking how to get the Bosnian documents. So it was very paradoxical. <laughs> and, um, you know, like talking with the government, talking with the police, you know, we found out that my mom needs a proof and she needs you know, approved that she was living in Bosnia during the war because there is a law that if the immigrants and migrants lived in Bosnia during the war, they have right to get the citizenship of Bosnia. But the problem was like that my mom didn't have any proof. And then like later we found out that she was receiving uh, humanitarian aid in 1992. And uh, it was really fascinating that the man who was giving humanitarian aid actually saved the document mm-hmm. where is written my mom's uh-huh. name and uh, she gave the signature with the fingerprint and with this document and with the two witnesses we went to the police station and we proved actually that she had lived in bosnia and this is how she obtained her documents uh-huh. and then i took her to the sea and then i just had my camera with me during that time i didn't even aim to make a video work I just like had my camera to record and to show to my sisters because everyone in my village was waiting to, to hear from my mom. How is that to go to the sea? Because none of women ever went to the sea. And we're, I'm talking about hundred women. And my mom is the only one who went. I, I see my mom as an emancipation, you know, because she was a role model for other women to also obtain their uh, documents. And then, you know, I... Yeah, don't go, don't go to the sea. And then I just made this artwork, you know, Saltwater at 47, you know, and then this work is talking about many ways how my mom was oppressed, but how she actually succeed within this kind of help of her daughter, of me. And then, you know, researching later about this work, you know, like I came across very amazing researcher and philosopher Marina Grzynic, who is actually talking about the concept of bedding, which means immigrants and migrants who are constantly in the process of dying, the bodies which are dying. Mm-hmm. And then I was so fascinated by this concept that I had to create my own. And I made my own, which is called lifing, because I never perceived my mom or other women as bodies who are dying. I perceived them as a female bodies here who are in the process of living because they looked for the better life. They wanted to experience the suffering themselves. Or when we talk about the immigration today, migration, those bodies are not looking to die. They're looking to survive. This is why I created the concept of lifing. That's interesting. 
it, it reminds me also of, of the paintings um, you do uh, where with those creatures where those females female mm. bodies become like creatures reclaiming their space like living forever yeah. something <laughs> with this idea of um, yeah yeah it's called superpositional intersectionalism so I took this um, concept from the quantum physics uh, superposition which is saying that uh, quantum atoms exist everywhere at the same time and when I connect that with myself, with my own identity, then I don't possess only one. I possess multiple ones, and I use them in a different ways. And, uh, for example, the first performance which I did with a superposition was when I was boxing with myself. I don't know if you saw this work. Yeah. And then later, I actually created the superpositional intersectionalism. Intersectionalism, the concept which is, you know, connecting many bodies and identities into one. And when you have superpositional intersectionalism, then you create the bodies which are everything and everyone. You know, like it's not only one thing. It becomes everything and every, everyone at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I quote, I found a nice quote um, that fits very well. You said, I don't present myself as a Romnia, as a European. I'm part of the whole universe. Yeah, yeah. And not, it's not only that I am, we are all. Because we're one thing that people forgot to think about, that we are on the planet, that we are part of the universe, that we are not only part of the Europe or US, we're part of the planet. We have to think much deeply about, you know, like where we are at. Mm. So we already talk about your art. When did you decide to, to become an artist? I don't know. I think I never decided. It just happened to me. I, I, I don't remember the time when I was not an artist. I mean, I could be anything else, but like, it's just like, uh, I choose me. I didn't choose art, somehow mm -hmm. like that. And how was the reaction of your family when you when you told them that you're going to study fine arts? As for every female, it's always hard when you say, you know, that you're going to go and study because mm -hmm. everyone expects you to get married and have children. But I was always like a hardcore child. I was always fighting for my own rights, for my own voice. So I just made sure that I have enough money and that I will go to study. And the money which I made was for, from like collecting scrap metal or I don't know mm. what else, like drawing for other people mm. like at school. So mm -hmm. I mean, like elementary school was like, okay, like, you know, of course you have to go, but then like also high school. But then when you decide to go and study in another city, that's when the problem starts because <laughs> you're a little bit older. I was like, 18 and like you know I was already mature and like ready for everything but mm. they saw me as a person who could be a mother but I never saw myself like that and I had my mother to stay on my side mm. and then slowly I was also like I mean like I had a lot of fights with my father to be honest like we didn't agree upon like many stuff but later he realized that I can't stop making artists art because I wouldn't be able to survive but I also had two brothers I think you know the Mesut Selman and Ferdi Selman mm -hmm. and they were extraordinary artists they're really amazing yes, and they are. Uh, and Mesut actually um, decided to go with me and this was kind of easier because I had my brother to go to study with me mm -hmm. so you come from a small village and now you live in, in New York City are you in fact a countryside person or a city person I don't know, like I'm all that because like I love, I love big cities, but at the same time, I love my village. Like I don't feel difference when I go. <laughs> I mean, of course there are many differences, but I feel great in both. You know, sometimes like I get bored from one and I have to go to another. This is why, I don't know, I live in both continents. 
Okay, but you, so you're traveling a lot and you have artist residencies uh, here and there. And so... Now you will say that I'm typical Roma, right? <laughs> no, 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 I won't. No, 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 no. That's not what I was going to say. Uh, Let's be I've clear here. People, people said that to me as well. Uh, I have a, another story where I, I was telling someone how I you know, lived in New York, went to school there, and then I moved to uh, Prague and then I worked in Germany and all the time it was for, you know, a big corporation and someone said, Oh, so you really have like a Roma life. <laughs> I thought, uh, no, this is the corporate expat life. I work for an insurance company. This is uh, how many. Okay. I no, guess. it's because you're Rome. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You know, glad, glad someone told me, otherwise I wouldn't have figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> but, but seriously, since since uh, you do travel a lot, where do you feel at home? Uh, I feel at home when I make art and when I do the performance. Like that's when I feel at home because I don't feel at home like a like a physical space as a home. I feel like my home when I feel myself is when I when I am able to make art. It's how you feel and where it's how you feel that makes you makes it home. Okay. <laughs> yes. I can make my home anywhere somehow, but just recently I made my own studio, actually. Um, it's called Summer Summer Studio, and it's in my village. And there I have everything what I need. And I actually feel really great there because I have my studio. I have the entire scrap metal, you know, the entire village, you know, and so much inspiration and so much things to do. Like, I just cannot wait to go again and to produce some other work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what about, we talked about home, but what about your identity? I often found a lot of Europeans have rigid ideas about identity. Uh, whereas in America, yeah, anyone can be American anytime. They can become American. It's There's a different approach there. Do you have uh, an American approach, a European approach, or do you have the Selma approach? That's something completely different. <laughs> I don't know. Probably I have superpositional Selma, Selma and specific superpositional approach to the world. Um, I don't know. Like, I mean, like I've been living in the U S for how many years, like four years. And then I grew up in Bosnia and Balkans, but I would travel a lot to Europe and work. And I was also researching a, a lot in South Asia. So I don't know, like, it's a really interesting question when you think about all these parts and what they make from you and from your identity. They just make you learn stuff. The more you know, the less you want to have one identity. The more you know, the less you want to think about yourself only as a one thing. I just feel like the world should shouldn't be so segregated and divided. Maybe if we go back into like uh, thinking of ourselves as uh, Thomas More and his utopia, you know, in his book, like that we create utopia for ourselves where everyone becomes equal and that we actually respect and tolerate and that we don't divide people. I think we would all be happier and much more kind of make better art maybe. Has that made an impression on you the way Americans look at things when you're in America? Has that had any influence on you? Do you do maybe you don't agree? Maybe you think Americans uh, look at things differently? (sighs) Well, Americans who are Americans, you know, like America is, you know, like it's it's created of immigrants, like migrants, you know, like everyone has a different opinions, and like of course, and the history and the slavery and everything what happened here created this 
somehow artificially uh, created identities which would laugh at you, but at the same time not laugh at you. But there's like specific things which I learned in the U.S. It's how do you respect yourself more? Because here, if you don't respect yourself, if you don't show to people how much you know, no one's going to ask you. As for example, at Balkans, it's bad thing to say how good you are because you have to be modest. And here it's totally opposite. <laughs> and then in Europe, you have to use both. And that's what I have now. Like I have the views and the knowledge from the both co- continents. And this is what helped me to be con- con- consistent in my works and also to, I don't know, to, to get the knowledge and to do the things I do today. Mm-hmm. And, and well, let's let's go a little bit further. Can you talk a little bit about the situation of Roma in Bosnia and Herzegovina? You were talking about how, uh, yeah, you have to be modest, but uh, how how is this situation for them? If if they're in Bosnia and they're only in Bosnia and they haven't had the chance to to travel to to Europe and to America like you, what's their life like now after the war? And and uh, how has it changed from from before the war? Before the war, after the war, and now it was always difficult for Roma people. I don't know when was not difficult for Roma people, you know, because if you are if you are living, you know, in the country where you're born, but you're not respected as as other citizens, how can you be happy, and how can you, I don't find the satisfaction in your life. So it's difficult, of course, in many other levels, you know, but. People are trying to survive and they find their own ways of surviving, you know, as like finding all kinds of jobs to work. Um, I don't know, making themselves important, you know, and uh, making the life interesting for themselves. And of course, like there's so many issues regarding the ecological, I don't know, like uh, economical and technical uh, stuff in Bosnia. You know, it is very difficult for everyone to find a jobs in Bosnia. But can you imagine how hard it is for Roma without education and with the discrimination? Yeah. So what else I can say? I mean, like I can speak about myself. I'm good. I'm happy. I did what I could. And, you know, like I'm doing what I can. I, I don't have those billions and millions that I can give to everyone. If I would, if I would have, I would give. And I think this is what we need. We need universal basic income for everyone. If you give like health insurance for people, if you give them free education, if you give them some money, like a universal basic income, people would be happy. They would be able to finally find their own way and path in life. But like this, people always struggle and survive, and no one is actually living. They're all surviving. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and the situation is deteriorating um, now during the pandemic. But now it's really yeah. worse. I mean, there is like one article that I read recently. Someone wrote like, why the virus didn't enter into Roma villages. And they wanted to say it's because, you know, like discrimination or because... I don't know, because no one went and checked on Roma. Of course, this is true, but the virus went everywhere. And of course, it went to the Roma villages. But why you didn't do the um, testing? Who tested? You know, how do you know that they're not infected? Mm. You know, who cares? Like. I even read that uh, Rama camps were uh, were closed and access to um, to hospitals and medicine and healthcare was denied to Rama during the pandemic. 
I mean, like, also when you think, for example, during the Bosnian War, Roma people were last to receive the humanitarian aid. And then what can you think about this current situation? Of course, it, I'm wondering if Roma will be the one who would get the first vaccine. Would that happen ever in Europe, in the United States or in the Balkans? Because they're going to first give the vaccine to the white privilege, mm-hmm. you know, and then minority will always be the last. At least, I mean, I don't know. I just feel there is a way out. And I'm sure that I don't want to be like negative. I think that like there is a way out how Roma people can they fight for themselves, you know, but first we need education. We need mm. young generations, you know, who are educated and capable and like to have the knowledge. But I'm just scared today because the new generation, they have everything. They have technology. They have so much information that they can get the best possible knowledge. You know, they can read the book by Thomas More about Utopia on Internet. This is the book which was written 500 years ago, and you can use it today to just use some details from this book, and you can see how life can be good and normal for Mm. everyone. But I'm scared that new generations think that they know more, Mm. but they're getting so much stupid and dumber because if you can see that all children, they look the same. All young girls, all boys, they all look the same. They think they know, but actually they don't know. They have no idea like how they can you know, survive. If you put them in the forest, I think they would die without TikTok or without technology. (laughs) My daughter is 12 years old. I know what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. Like, I don't want to be rude. (laughs) Trying not to. I have nieces and nephews who I could say the same thing. Mm -hmm. How did you personally experience the pandemic and the lockdown? Because, I mean, if we had no pandemic, we would meet in person today um, to do this podcast. Now we're sitting in in New York and Bill in Paris, me in Berlin. How did you experience the lockdown and the pandemic so far? First of all, I was very sad because like uh, my show in Rome was uh, canceled because I was supposed to get the Ferrari to destroy And I was uh, like, oh. I lost Ferrari. Wow, you know? Ferrari, even better than a Mercedes, isn't it? <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's it. And I was like, actually, they, they asked me to choose between the private jet and Ferrari. And I chose Ferrari. And I was like, this is going to be my year. <laughs> and then the virus happened. <laughs> this was the sign. <laughs> and then I went to Bosnia, actually. I was actually, in March, I was in Vienna. I had an opening in Kunsthalle, Vienna. Mm -hmm. It was like 8th of March. We had an opening. There was like 3,000 people. And then tomorrow, everything was, everyone was in lockdown. And I had only one flight from Vienna to Zagreb, which I had to catch up. And I was the only one in the, like, metro. I was, like, so scared. (laughs) I was shaking. I got panic attacks. I, I was, like, I had to dance, you know, to feel good, you know, because I was, like, I don't know. And then I went home and then I stayed at home in my village for eight months in the lockdown. And during that time, I was like, I'm not going to wait for the borders to open. The only thing what I can do now, make my studio. And I built. Everyone in Bosnia started to build the houses and stuff because people didn't couldn't go to the seaside. And then I just built my studio. I made the new work, a pink room of her own, my mother's room. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was just like... I made a library. I made a multimedia library for children. I was like reading and I was drinking tea next to the like wooden stove. I had time of my life. 
<laughs> you already mentioned a lot of uh, artworks uh, we definitely want to talk about. Well, you're such a diverse artist. Uh, you, you, you say, I use art as mechanism to fight marginalization, stereotypes, and to fight for women's rights. Uh, you do drawing, you do performances, often in public space, you do video works, you use digital technologies. You already mentioned, which is actually a great answer, uh, being asked, how was lockdown and the Corona pandemic for you and you said like you were crying not to be able to destroy a Ferrari. So let's start with the, <laughs> with the, with the artwork Mercedes Matrix, a performance yeah. from 2020 where you are destroying a Mercedes. Do you want to talk about it? I think it was 2019. Ah, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was in Hamburg for the Crass Festival. I actually got this invitation and then it took me five months actually to think about what to do. And then like Every time when I got so like big invitation with a lot of budgets, I always have meetings with my family. Then we sit and then we talk about what we are going to do. And then uh, actually my father came up with the idea to destroy the Mercedes, <laughs> you know, because they're really great, like in um, titles and like, you know, like um, approach to art. This is why I call them performance artists because they're really good. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, yeah, Mercedes would be good because at first I destroyed the washing machine, then the vacuum cleaners. And I wanted to do something also, which is related to capitalism, mm -hmm. but also like Germany and labor and stereotypes and everything. So Mercedes was actually a perfect object. And I asked, you know, my family if they want to take part in this. And they said, of course, only if they get the honorariums. So they don't accept anything if it's not paid, which I think is amazing. This is how every artist should approach to the art world. <laughs> and then, like, I had, they asked for, they actually asked for a lot of money, but then, like, I had to negotiate with the director for that money, <laughs> like a business work. And then my father was like, it's not like, it was not enough people. It was like supposed to be like me, my father, my brother. And my father was like, we need a fourth person. And they had to invite our neighbor, Mirso. Mirso is an amazing man. He was like working with my father for many years. Mm -hmm. And then we actually took him as well. And then it was the problem, like they don't want to fly. They don't want to go with the plane. They want oh. to travel to, to Hamburg. And you're like, By how car. far? <laughs> yes, it's so far. And I was like, <laughs> I can't go with you because I have a show in Paris. So I had to fly to Paris and they were driving to Hamburg. It took them 18 hours in a car <laughs> and they they drove. <laughs> I think that was amazing because my brother was like, I'm going to get the heart attack in the plane because he never... Yeah, yeah, yeah. My brother's the same. <laughs> <laughs> it was so funny. And then I was like, I, I had so many work during that time. I was like in, in Croatia, then I, I flew to Paris and from Paris I flew to Hamburg and we met in Hamburg actually. And I had only, I think I had like eight hours to rest and then do another performance. Before that, I did another performance, um, the superposition I was boxing with myself. And then um, it was amazing. I think this was the most wonderful experience of the of the art, but also performance, but something which is so real. You know, when you're talking, we, we are working with the people who are so real, they're so close to you and you know they want you the best. You know that they're going to do the best what they can do. 
And then, of course, we requested a specific clothes, which is Matrix clothes from the film. And uh, we needed glasses, we needed gloves, and we got <laughs> everything. It was so proppy. My fam- like my father, my brother, and Mirza, they were like fascinated. This was the first time that they felt so important in doing what they're doing. Because like recycling the metal ways and digging the metal is not perceived as a job which you know successful people are doing. You know, people who don't have education, uh, scavengers, they're doing this. Uh-huh. I can just invite all the listeners to visit uh, the website Selman Selma. There you have at the starting page, you have a huge image of this performance. You all wearing black dresses and leather <laughs> and sunglasses and this completely destroyed Mercedes um, around you. How much hours does it take? It took us two hours and a half. Oh, really? Actually, yeah. It was, yeah, it's not really easy because uh, you have to take parts, you know. It was like a surgery, actually, because like we were all... It's a good car. You can't break it that easily. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Don't destroy it so easily. Yeah, it took two and a half hours. uh, And uh, when I was doing, when we were doing the performance, I also had an audio in the back like in this in the speaker which actually explained what is the work about and mm-hmm. you know like mm-hmm. what we're doing because we had a lot of audiences and we didn't have like um intro to the performance because i don't like that like i just spoke about the performance before and then we put it on the speaker which was really good because people actually got the point mm-hmm. the reason why i'm doing these kind of performances because like as you know the the personal which is connected with with me working uh, with my father and then social my father like working and making money from this kind of job and then universal because for me metal has like um Many other interesting, uh, you know, connotations and like concepts. For example, 200 uh, million year- years ago, when the Metaro strike hit the Earth, it destroyed everything on Earth, and this is how the kind of we we got the metal which we are using today from the forks to mm-hmm. the phone. And it's kind of, you know, makes this universal topic for all of us. And then, like, when you take this labor, which my family is doing, you put it in the art world, it actually gots another. Um, another value because in the village it has a value only you know to make money Mm. for my family and so we can survive but in the gallery work in the gallery or in the museum it becomes very valuable it becomes an artwork it becomes like um, also a kind of survival tool for both me as an artist but also for my family, but also it's also connected with the, uh, my foundation Get Back to School because one part of the money goes also for this kind of project. So mm-hmm. it's very transformative work because I really like to deal with the objects which are rejected, you know, mm-hmm. which doesn't have any value. But when you put them in like a gallery and transform them and give them this site-specific value, like it becomes like very uh, important. Mm-hmm. You know, the same I'm doing with paintings on metal. Yeah, I paint on these waste, you know, something which could be sold so cheap. Like I paint on that, on this, and I put it in the gallery in New York. And then I have rich people who go and like touch it <laughs> and like smell at it. And like, it's so, I can't explain you how big, it, like how pleasure it is, <laughs> you know, because I know that this object was about to go in a trash or, you know, to be, sold for one cent but in the gallery it gets so much value because of the entire story and the concepts behind it Mm. yeah amazing stories and and yeah 
talk to us about your studio. You talk to us about the cars being destroyed and your family being involved in your work. I'd like to ask you if you can tell us a little bit about the, the Roma community that, that you're a part of, that you know. How has the Roma reaction been to your art? Well, I have a lot of respect for my community. They call me Tito. Oh, yeah? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh, you know, that's, like, a, that's a good one. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, like first time in my family and my entire village realized that I'm going to America. You know, the land of the dreams. They they put like a feast for me. Like we had to celebrate it because it's it's just like I'm going to the military or I'm going to the moon. And uh, we celebrated, then I came back here. I, I, I came to study. And then the first time when I went to visit my family, my dad came to pick me up with a van, which was covered with American flags and like two <laughs> huge American flags in the front. And he was like, came to pick me up. It was just like a president came home, yeah, yeah. you know, and everyone is waiting for me. And of course, everyone is asking for money because if you're in America, <laughs> you're full of money, you have yes. money. Yes. So. No, I have really huge respect, especially from children. They really all love me. And they always have to try my shoes. <laughs> yeah. If I have a new sneakers, yeah, everyone wants to try it. Um, before we play another little game, I have to talk to you about one more um, artwork because it is really so amazing. This It's a pink room of her own, the installation you did for and with your mother. Can you tell us a bit about it? Well, first of all, my mom really likes to be part of my art world because like every time I have camera, she's actually performing. I don't have to tell her anything. She's she's really talented. Actually, I started this project uh, in 2017 when we were just talking about the rooms. And then she would tell me that she always imagined to have a pink room, you know, when she was a child, but she never had it because she was... She was never a child, actually. And then, like, I would just draw this room. And I told her, like, one day we're going to make this in reality. But she never believed. She was like, no, someone's just going to make an artwork. And then after I made the 3D model, which was exhibited, I think, also in, in Berlin. And then just this year, a few months ago, I got, like, a grant from Germany. And um, I managed to make her room. And then it was really fascinating because she couldn't believe that it's going to become reality. And when everyone found out that, you know, she's going to get the pink room, everyone's like laughing because like, why my mom wants a pink room? <laughs> and she just didn't give up from having a, everything pink. So seriously, everything is pink in her room. And I mean, like, it's really fascinating because uh, she actually went again to her childhood mm -hmm. through this room. But she also got her freedom and the uh, authority, you know, because finally she received something that she always wanted to have. And it was her right to have her childhood and to have her room. But mm. Now, after 50 years, she got this room. I'm connecting this work also with a book by Virginia Woolf, mm -hmm. a, a book of one's own, because, uh, you know, in her book, she's also talking about how important it is for a woman to have 500 euros, dollars, and to have a room where she can actually make a fiction, where she can create. So what I'm saying with this work, my mom doesn't write, right? But she has this right to get her freedom through this room because I think every woman should get authority to do what they want, mm. you know, with their body, with their life, with anything. And uh, the connection between the book and with this room is also very interesting because, you know, the book and the work, I'm also talking about the patriarchy 
you know, because like because of the patriarchal, uh, you know, situation and because of the capitalism, my mom lost her childhood. And now, like after so many years, she actually got her room, which she was supposed to get a long time ago. Wow. Where is this room now? Is it in, in your hometown? Yeah, it's actually in a permanent collection mm -hmm. uh, in my home. Yeah. So, so she can visit it whenever she wants to. She lives there. She's using the room. She sleeps in the room. This is a real room. Wow. It's not that I just created a room where she can just visit. Yeah, yeah. She actually got her bed, like a dresser, makeup, table, I don't know, everything. So you two sat together and she was just describing how it how it should look like in detail. Yeah. And you just made it for her. Yeah, everything what she wanted. We went to shop and we had to order like many stuff. For example, she wanted to have a piano. And then later she said, I actually don't want piano. I want just a table piano for makeup to look like piano. And I had to draw this and to give to some person to make it. So she was very strict about what she wants, which I really love because that was her right. So my next question is actually a bit ridiculous uh, or becoming a bit obsolete. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you, uh, so this podcast is about utopia and I know that you strongly believe in art as a tool of resistance and actually so do I. Mm -hmm. You say that you're using art as a tool to bring changes and new possibility and I wanted to ask you if it works, but of course, yes, it does. I mean, you build a room for your mother, you destroyed a Mercedes. Um, mm -hmm. So the answer is just yes, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there is an emergent Romani art scenes, or let's avoid the term Roma artist. You also use the term artist of Romani origin. Do you think that Roma art or art by Romani artists can offer enough resistance? Or in other words, what does it take for Roma art to fully develop its power? I mean, like Roma art as a concept is still in development. And mm. I think it would take a lot of years actually to build the art scene with a lot of good artworks i mean it is possible of course i think everything is possible but of course it takes a lot of time and first of all we have to educate our artists i mean like i'm not saying we have to educate children so we can have the new generation of possible artists because we don't have that yet we still have issues with education once we fix this then we can hope that we're gonna have like the really great art scene with a much stronger artworks than today mm. which are actually dealing with the concepts not only with the concepts with the real idea of resistance that the art can really influence on today's issues and that it can resist it mm. yeah you're right I think it's time for a present, please. So I have to give you a present. Yes. Yes. We ask our guests to give us a virtual present that is somehow something important for them, telling an important, or is linked to a biographical anecdote or something like that. So we are very curious about what you brought us. So since... <laughs> This um, conversation was uh, kind of uh, about utopia. And uh, I actually had the work which exists only on the internet. I never did it. And it's called Where is My UBI? Where is My Universal Basic Income? And it's actually talk talking about the utopic idea of the world, which is also related to the Thomas More book, mm -hmm. Utopia. So I would give you this website as a present. Great. Universal Basic Income. Yeah, it's called Where's My UBI, Where's My Universal Basic Income, which is kind of uh, related to what I'm doing because I want universal basic, basic normal rights for every human being on this planet. Yeah. 
that yes. really fits. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> That's yes. an utopia. Thank you. Thank you very Thank much. You. So let's talk a bit about what role it plays for you to be Romnia. We already learned that your work is very much influenced by your biographical experiences as a Romnia, as a woman, of course. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk a bit about traditions, whatever this is, and cultural identities, whatever this is, and your experiences um, with this. Um, I first want to tell you what Daniel Baker, um, whom you know very well, is, is describing when he talks about what he calls gypsy aesthetics. Um, and mm -hmm. he's talking about the key themes like community, family, gender, home, resistance, coming with the qualities of adaptability, captivation, discordance, interruption, ornament, performativity. Does this description make sense to you? Or how would you describe kind of your Roma identity or the identities? Yeah, I think for me, it is, uh, I guess it's always part of me and it always coexists with me and my words. I mean, like, uh, I don't know, like, is it necessary actually to describe it? I don't know, like, because a lot of people are actually asking the, this question, like, how is that to be Romney? But how is that to be a human being? You know, it's normal, right? Mm -hmm. You feel yeah, normal. Yeah. But of course, like, how is that to be a human being who don't have, like, the same rights as other human beings? How is that to be perceived as a second-class citizens? How is that to be discriminated? How is that not to have uh, a food? How is that to have not have, like, a certain things? This is the question we should be asked for the people who don't have these things, you know, because for me, like, I'm fine. Like, I'm okay with myself. You know, like, I don't have any issues with myself. Maybe other people have, but I don't. Mm -hmm. And I think the real question, like, if you go in the village and you ask the Roma people how they feel to be a Roma, they would tell you the real answer. Yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, how is it to be a normal person when nobody thinks of you as a normal, as a normal person? person? Or yeah. how is it to be a normal person if everybody thinks that maybe yeah. you're really not that normal, but they want to hear it from you anyway? <laughs> you know, like, it's really interesting because, for example, like, sometimes, like, when I go back home and everyone knows that I'm wrong because I'm always, like, on the media, like, and then people approach to me as I'm, I don't know, like, I'm from the moon, like, alien, you know, like, wow, <laughs> you know, the question I'm getting from the people who to interview me is like how come Selma you're so educated and then I ask people directly on the like national TV station like how comes you are educated asking me questions about education <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, that's, that's right? the best answer thank you <laughs> great answer yeah. I also like a quote I once read by you. Uh, you said, I can become anything that the situation requires me to become. Yes. That's also a nice one. Yeah. <laughs> in, in some ways, someone would say that that could be the perfect capitalist answer because, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you Maybe it's me, utopian. Okay. Maybe it's utopian. Okay. Wait for the Ferrari. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. There's a, a lot of Roma traditions uh, often passed down within families, uh, one generation to the next. Uh, some guests on this podcast as well have talked about traditions that have been passed down in their families. Is there anything you can you give an example of a, a Roma tradition, or, um, or perhaps not, or give it give it another angle like you just did mm -hmm. for for the journalist? <laughs> oh no, we have a lot of traditions. I yeah. mean, like uh, which my. For example, my father taught me that every Friday I should write my I should write five wishes on the piece of paper and really wish for them and burn them. I love and then, that. Oh. And, and I'm doing that since 
I was a child. Still? Yeah, and still I'm doing it. And one wish was for me when I was a child, I want to go to New York. And uh, this yeah. happened. <laughs> Seriously happened. But the trick is to really, really want it. You write it you down. You really, really have to want have it. To focus on it. Yes, yes. Focus yeah. is very important. Yeah, it. focus is actually really important. And there is like so many. For example, we celebrate Ederlesi. I don't know if you know what is yeah. Ederlesi. Yeah. George Evdan Herdelesi. The celebration in honor of St. George is one of the most important holidays for the Roma in the Southern Balkan area. It is one of the rare holidays to be celebrated by both Muslim and Christian Orthodox Roma. In the Orthodox Church year, St. George's Day falls on the 6th of May, but the festivities may begin earlier and last longer than a day. The Muslim counterpart, Herdelesi, derives from the Turk name of Hidrilis, which is a blending of Hizr and Elias. According to the legend, a meeting between the popular patron St. Hizr and the prophet Elias in the 9th century was at the origin of this once very popular Turkish spring celebration. I love it because like... We have so much food and like music and everyone is like happy and like um, everyone comes together and I don't know, we go to um, uh, cut our hair and throw the hair in the in the lake. Mm-hmm. This is why all Roma women have the beautiful hair. <laughs> and <laughs> Yeah, I mean, once... Oh my God, I have to tell you this story. I'm so sorry. There was like another reporter who came to interview me and my father was there and it was Ederlesi. And this woman asked my father, is Ederlesi a national holiday? And my father said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I want to I wanna tell you a bit the, the, the wishes. I, I really, um, this is just like, you know, today you have pop culture, pop uh, different psychologies, different things. And if you've heard of the law of attraction, I've, I've read some things about that in uh, recent years. And I was thinking once, when I read these things, these are like common sense things that my mother used to tell me when I was a child. And now there's someone making millions of dollars <laughs> se- se- selling this mm-hmm. common gypsy sense thing. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and well, it's like uh, what you just said, also the, the five wishes is similar to some of that philosophy as well, because you need to focus, you need to really mm-hmm. wish it, but you can't keep thinking about it because if you keep thinking about the lack of it, you stay focused far away from it so you burn it and then you forget about it and so that's what brings the magic to you we we have a lot that we need to figure out how to market here <laughs> absolutely i mean you remember what ethel brooks was talking about um that actually the profession of fortune telling is the is kind of roots for psychoanalysts because yes. they gypsies romani people were the the first people trying to understand the psycho of 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 the other so um that's that was also very interesting mm-hmm. yes yeah let's play a little game okay <laughs> we will read you some terms and you just answer spontaneously just with one word or a very short sentence okay okay art future knowledge power Resistance. Fight. Women. The power. Men. Weak. <laughs> Home. Anywhere. Yesterday. The best day. Tomorrow. The most 
the better way. Europe. Um, so many problems. <laughs> Politics. So boring. Dilino. Clever. Um, Bachtel. Sestipe. Uh, Gajo. Gaji. Anti-gypsyism. Resistance. <laughs> Okay, I love this Thank game. You. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's, it's really, yeah. Okay, it's always so interesting. <laughs> Dilno is the Anglo-Romani word for fool or foolish. Dilino is the Central European version of the same word. It's the diminutive of the word dilo. This is originally an adjective, but can be used as a noun. And in both cases, even people who don't know Romani very well will often know this word. Book is the Anglo-Romani word for luck. Its Central European version, bacht, means luck or happiness. Bachtalo is the adjective, means happy or lucky. It's typically used in a greeting, teoves bachtalo, may you be happy and lucky. Gorjo is the Anglo-Romani word for a non-Romani person. In Central European Romani, the word is gajo. In its original sense, it's not pejorative. Depending on context and tone of voice, it can be pejorative, and people not familiar with the Romani language often presume this negative meaning. Before we come to an end, let's talk about utopia and dreams. Are you an optimist or a pessimist? I'm always thinking about what will she answer during the last hour. Hmm. Um, <laughs> I'm very realistic, I would say. Mm-hmm. I am optimistic because I think about the future all the time, you know, like about the, the better better future for, for all of us. So I think I'm very optimistic. I'm pessimistic when I, I, I feel and I see that there is no hope for something and then I don't work about or I don't think about that. Mm. You think that the crisis, like the current pandemic, climate change, other problems the world is currently struggling with, could such a crisis be a starting point for changes? I mean, like all presidents of the United States would say one thing, with all crises comes opportunities. <laughs> so, uh -huh. Not just presidents, every manager. Yeah, every yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, like you can see that like people also used the pandemic to make money because we live in capitalism so how first we have to destroy capitalism in order to actually talk about the normal life i don't know mm. could we look at roma to serve as role models in a new way of understanding the europe of tomorrow or what can society learn from us if we want to create this utopia i mean of course why not we should be part of everything we should be part of the politics of the bringing new action plans, bringing like new laws, because we are also part of Europe as much Europe is part of us. And um, of course that uh, Europeans can learn a lot from us because we are also Europeans somehow. Because for example, I grew up in Bosnia and I'm part of the, that I'm part of the Balkans, I'm part of the Europe, I'm part of this continent and part of this world. Why shouldn't I be a role model For the white Europeans privileged people. Yeah, I mean, it's even maybe Roma are the real Europeans when you look at a transnational solidarity between Roma communities. Yeah, I mean, we are all Europeans. We are all everything somehow because of the immigration and like the... Mm. Sema, you said two quotes in relation to the future. 
Um, I'm going to read it to you. Once said, I predict in 10 years, 7 million people are going to get famous. And the other one goes, art has to bring new futures to all of us. Would you like to comment on your predictions? I think I was right with the first one because like, look at now, like everyone is using Zoom. Everyone is using Instagram. There's like more Instagramic accounts than, than people on earth, mm. you know, because Crazy. it's so easy to be famous today. And to make money somehow, like with that. Yeah, if Andy Warhol yeah. would have known this before. <laughs> oh my God, where would Andy Warhol be? You know. Yeah. So even Leonardo, you know, Da Vinci would use social media today. I think definitely. So I think you know you can see like everyone is getting much more famous. Yeah. That's what's going to happen. I think the another thing is going to be like. I think the cool thing will be not to be famous. If no one knows you, then you're so like dope. And yeah. you know, like for me, it, it, I don't actually think that success is money, fame, bank account. It's not success. Success is something if you really feel that you did something which is important. And when you feel like so good with yourself that no one can fuck with you, that's success. You know, famous and money is just the fucking paper and it's just the fucking image, nothing else. That brings me directly to the next question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sema, you're a fighter and please allow me a very personal question. So you're really wrong of this, one of the strongest young women I ever met, really. Where do you get your strength from? Thank you so much for that. Um, I don't know, like I think from everything that I'm surrounded with, uh, from my past, from my childhood, uh, and also like thinking a lot about what future is going to be. So I would say it comes from my personal, but also like a social and universal situation mm -hmm. somehow. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. You, you started to mention a few items, but I'm going to say a little bit more basically. What is your utopia? What's your dream for Europe or for the world? Do you have a, a Roma utopia, a Romatopia? Well, like I think for all, I think for all of us would be we should all think first of ourselves as human first, and then as a Europeans about white, black, Roma, because when you think about that, if we are all humans, then we all have the same, you know, like uh, capacities. We all have a heart. We all have a skin, right? So there shouldn't be a difference between us. And I imagine that, like I imagine. Everything what is normal, everything what is so simple and so simple that it's like so like you, I can't even Im imagine like how we, people cannot actually uh, realize that everyone needs equality, that we need peace. People want peace. People want to be happy. People want uh, normal stuff. It's not much. Everyone wants just uh, like, uh, I don't know, free education, health insurance some money, you know, a house, you know, I don't know, a, a room where people can read, you know, maybe internet connection. I mean, it's kind of related to the book, which was written 500 years ago. And I feel like so many years are wasted because yeah. like people wanted all this normal stuff. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it's so easy and yet so difficult to reach. Yeah. 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 Sama, another game. 
Okay. <laughs> one last game um, before we come to an end. Um, Selma, if you could ask one question on all radio stations, TV stations and print media in Europe, low, let's say uh, all over the world for one day, what would it be? What question would you pose? To everyone? Yeah. Um, what would be my question? Hmm. Um, where are our rights? Where, where are, where is uh, our universal basic income? Where are all these wasted years of trying and why? Why and how can we all be together and like not make the differences between us? Hmm. Yeah. So I have so many questions. Yeah, we need ask. we need three days for you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Thank you, Selma. Yeah, thank you, Selma. Thank you very much. This has been a very interesting conversation, and and for me, actually quite unique. I make some comparison with our other guests. There, you really have a different approach, but at the same time, I listen to everything that you say, and I think to myself, "Wow, this is uh, a real." I look for common threads. And if I listen to everything that you say, it's like, I know you're a Roma. You are, and, and you, you, you really know what it is to be Roma, but it's very different from what other people know to be Roma, but I feel it. And, and thank you, you know, so much. Because I mean, yeah, uh, the, the strong women in your family and how you approach things. I, for me, the best part was that your, your community calls you Tito. I, that's, yeah. that's, I'm, I'm so happy to hear that. I'm very, very very lovely discussion yes thank you so you're, much you're yeah. such an you're really a role model and an inspiring person and i really enjoyed this conversation thank you sama thank you very much for being with us thank you all so much i also had a wonderful time thank you so much romatopia is supported by the federal agency for civic education and the council of europe roma and travelers team idea and concept isabel rabe Romatopia is hosted and edited by Isabel Rabe and William Bila and directed by Katja Lehmann. Sound design by Selamet and Kefait Prizaini. Cover motif by Daniel Baker. Production Media Bricks Berlin 2020.